Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Running a little bit late, and, you know, I was thinking about it. I may have been a liar earlier today because I was talking to some friends about how I think I did my first drosh at Etzheim about... 13, 14 years ago, and I said, you know, I don't think I've ever done one that was under an hour, but that's not true, because on YouTube, there is one that's about 50 minutes, but there's also a drosh that was so long, they had to break it into two videos, and uh, David really impressed upon me the need to keep it at 45 minutes, so I cut a lot of stuff out and thought I would pick up my pacing a bit, and then I spoke to Luis, who's going to be translating, and made sure to ask me that I go slowly. <laughs> Which means today could go very, very bad. <laughs> but we'll try. So um, today's drosh I call The Inheritance of Abraham, Heirs of the Promise. And to try to keep my word to David and avoid getting ugly faces, let's just dive right into it. Um, I'm going to be looking at Parashah Re'eh which is, I think, a very important parasha. I actually did a drash on Re'eh like four years ago. It's on YouTube. Um, but I'm going to be looking at it from a different angle. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's like, you know, 15 chapters long, or five chapters long. I'm just going to hit a little bit from the beginning. So starting parasha Re'eh at Deuteronomy 11, starting from verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Eval. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, and the land of the Canaanites, who live in the Arba, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Moreh? For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. And then we're going to skip to chapter 12, verse 8 and 9. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not yet come to the rest and the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. So let's set the stage for what is talking about. The children of Israel are on the plains of Moab. And Moses knows that he will not be permitted to enter the land with them to guide them into their inheritance. And so Deuteronomy is him basically retelling the Torah, which is why it's called Deuteronomy. And, um, and he's giving them this final charge from the plains of Moab. And we see that before they go into their inheritance, which is the land, he gives them this instruction. He says, I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey God, and the curse if you don't obey God, and go after other gods. And very strangely, 
he tells them to put this blessing and curse on certain mountains in the land of Israel. The mountain of blessing is Gerzim, and the mountain of cursing is Eval. And these are two twin mountains that between them sits the city of Shechem, known as Nabulus today. And Gerzim is a, a, a lushful, beautiful, bountiful mountain that has trees and whatnot, or did have trees. And Eval is a rocky, barren, ugly mountain. And they still exist to this day, of course. And he admonishes them not to do what they are doing at this point in their history with Moses. Don't do whatever is right in your own eyes. Why? Because you've not yet come to the rest or the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. So there's a lot to unpack just in these portions of this portion that we can talk about. And what I want to talk to you about today is the inheritance part. But before I do, I'm going to talk about the blessing and the curse. Because you can't just ignore this putting blessing and curses on on mountains, right? That's kind of weird. Um, Moses gives a little bit more instruction on these blessings and curses in uh, a later portion, uh, Parashah Kitavo which is in Deuteronomy 27. And uh, I have a part of it on the slides. He says, And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on all of them the words of this law, the Torah, which uh, when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Eval, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there, Mount Eval, you shall build an altar to the Lord, your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord, your God, of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord, your God, And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So not only were the children of Israel commanded to put these blessings and curses on certain mountains, but even more strangely, God commands them to write the Torah on these plastered stones and put them where? on Mount Eval, which is the mountain of curses. And he commands them to build an altar and rejoice. On which mountain? Just make sure you're paying attention. Mount Eval, right? The mountain of curses. Isn't that strange? And then in Deuteronomy 27 and the following chapters, Moshe then tells them about these blessings and and curses. First, he tells them what's going to invoke the curse. And he has various things. It's things like, cursed is the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, and sets it up in secret, and all the people will say amen. Cursed is anyone who dishonors his father and his mother, who moves his neighbor's landmark, who misleads the blind, who perverts injustice someone who lies with his father's wife or with any animal or with his sister or with his mother-in-law, 
or who strikes down his neighbor in secret, or who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And I think when we hear these curses, I don't think anyone here would think that they disagree with that, right? You shouldn't be dishonoring your parents. You shouldn't be lying with your mother-in-law, for heaven's sake. And these are, you can consider these almost like commandments in a negative way. Don't do this. Don't, you know, kill your neighbor in secret. Don't move his boundary stone. But then there's something that we lawyers call a catch-all. And that catch-all is in verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now, there is a lot of things in the Torah that we're commanded to keep. It's a little bit easier than not lying with your mother-in-law. But it then declares what we shall get if we receive the blessing. This is in Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then it provides a list of blessings. And then after that, it provides the list of curses. You should look at those blessings and curses at some point and see if any of these ever came about. Now, it sounds like Moses is saying, That if you obey the law, it'll bring a blessing. But if you break the law, it brings a curse. Doesn't it sound like that's what Moses is saying? Well, it sounds like that because that is what Moses is saying. The problem with that, a lot of people can interpret that to mean that if you want to be one of God's people, you have to obey the Torah. And if you break the law, then you're no longer one of God's people. And it can turn into this concept of what people think is you know, salvation by works. And we as believers in Yeshua, we know that our salvation doesn't come from our works. It, it's salvation is by grace through faith, and none of that is of yourself. It is a gift of God. So a lot of theologians look at Moses and the Torah and things like the curses and blessings and Perashare and Kitabo, and they say, hmm, there's an inconsistency here. Because we know that we're saved by God's grace, but it sounds like Moses is saying you have to keep the law. And so they try to do what a lot of people with more of a Western mindset does. They try to understand it, and they create things that we call religion, and they try to make certain distinctions, things like dispensationalism, right? How do we explain what appears to be a discrepancy? Well, maybe at one time, salvation was through sacrifice and keeping the law, and then we're in a new era where now it's by the blood of Yeshua. Or maybe it's younger cousin replacement theology. God chose the people, the Jews. He said, this is what you need to do. They didn't do it, so God rejected them and gave us a new law. Salvation by grace. Other ways to try to reconcile the difference, like two-covenant theology. Well, if you're Jewish, then you're saved by keeping the law under the covenant of Abraham and Moses. And if you're not a Jewish, depending on whether you're 
Jewish or Christian your perspective. Either keep the, the covenant of Noah or the Christian perspective, keep the new covenant. Now, is that really right? <clears throat> did, did God change his mind? Did God decide, you know, maybe I was wrong when I gave my commandments to Moses? Well, what does God tell us? He says, the scriptures say, God's, he's, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 18.30. Or the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 19.7. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 48. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Numbers 23.19. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi 3.6. God doesn't make mistakes. God has not rejected his people. And God does not change. God's plan of salvation is the same today as it was yesterday, as it was from the beginning. I believe very strongly that God's plan of salvation has always been through the blood of Yeshua. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you will see that the sacrifices and the priesthood and the temple are shadow pictures of Yeshua. His plan of salvation is his son Yeshua dying on a cross. Yeshua, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8. Yeshua Messiah is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8. And I don't believe that there's different paths of salvation. Yeshua said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through me. John 14.6. But if God does not change, then how do we reconcile these words with the truth that we know? That our salvation is through grace. It's a gift of God. Well, I think that's the wrong question. What I've come to learn is there are no inconsistencies in the Bible. You may have a weird translation People sometimes assert their theology. You can talk about what manuscript you're relying on. But in the end, there are no inconsistencies in God's word. If you think there's an inconsistency, you need to rethink your thinking. Because the Torah is really about Yeshua. That's what I spoke about the last time I was here. Yeshua says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, that bear witness of me. John five thirty nine. He says, if you would believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, John 5, 46. So here, Moses is actually writing about Yeshua. This, what I've read to you today, in Re'eh and Kitavo, is actually the gospel. It's the good news. Because in the end, in a veiled way, it speaks of Yeshua. And that's what I spoke of last time, how Yeshua is veiled. In the Torah. In order to understand what appears to be an inconsistency, I think we need to look at these blessings and curses in context. 
the context in Re'eh is they were about to enter the inheritance, the land. And after they're in the land, God says, we're going to have this blessing and curse thing. In order to understand the blessings and the curses, we need to understand the inheritance. So let's talk about inheritances. So I put up in the slide a kind of overly simplified and not very precise definition of an inheritance for a few reasons. The way inheritance works today has changed from the ancient world. And we're used to certain terminology that really wasn't applicable back then. So I do a bit of mixing of my terms on purpose. You'll understand later, but I want to draw some parallels. And by the way, I'm going to talk about an inheritance like in the modern sense. This is not legal advice, okay? I didn't even take wills in the States in law school. I know enough to pass the bar 23 years ago, which means I know enough to get myself in trouble. And everyone's law is different in your jurisdiction, so your mileage may vary. Ordinarily, in the modern sense in America, you can die and pass on your stuff in one of two ways. You can either have a will or you cannot have a will. And by the way, it's called will and testament for anachronistic reasons because a will was to get rid of your, your land and a testament was to get rid of your, your stuff. Today, we just kind of throw them together. So if you have a will, then you, the person who signs the will, you're called a testator. And the people that you identify as receiving your estate are your beneficiaries. They're the ones who you bequeath or devise, whether it's real or personal property, when you die. Not legal advice. If you don't have a will, you're said to be intestate, without a testament. And when you die without a will, your stuff goes to your heirs. So usually the term heirs is usually used when you don't have a will in most places. And by the way, it could be a mess, and oftentimes you have to have a probate proceeding and there's a judge, which is why you should have a will. So if you don't have a will, see a lawyer, get a will, just don't see me, because I don't do wills. How did inheritance work in the ancient world? Well, in the ancient world, and I'm going to use a modern term, typically in most ancient Near Eastern uh, civilizations, not just Israel, when you died, your stuff went to what we today would call the heirs of your body. In other words, your children, which actually means the wise in most ancient cultures didn't get the inheritance. The sons got the inheritance, which is why it was important to have a son. You have a son, and he can take care of your wife. Because when you had the inheritance, it was typically in land, and someone had to work the land, right? What did you do if you didn't have a son, if you did not have an heir? What did you do? There's actually an ancient manuscript, I think it's from Samaria or something, where a husband actually adopts his own wife so that she can receive his inheritance. So he makes his wife his daughter. Which is kind of weird. What the ancient Israelites would do is they would adopt one of their servants. That's what's happening in Genesis 15 when God is talking to Abram, and Abram says, God says, I'm going to give you this blessing, this promise, this inheritance. And Abram says, but I have no heir. One who's born in my house, which means a servant. Eleazar is my heir. And God says, no, one who will come from your body will be your heir. But if you don't have an heir, then you would have to adopt somebody. 
And so there are different types of covenants, covenant of marriage, covenant of peace. There's also a covenant of adoption. And if you think about it, the covenant of adoption is the closest thing we can think of today as having a last will and testament in that you are choosing somebody and you're making that person a son so that they can then receive an inheritance. So in my definition here, in my overly simplistic mixing of modern and ancient terms imprecisely for the purpose of this drosh, I define inheritance as being the promised property that an heir receives upon the death of the testator. So let's talk about each of these elements because we know in our parashah it says you've not yet entered your inheritance. What is the inheritance that God is referring to in Re'eh? Well, the inheritance is the land itself. Psalm 105 says on the overhead, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So the inheritance that God is giving to Israel is the land of Israel. And they got this inheritance from who? From Abraham. Abraham passed it to Isaac, his heir, who passed it to Jacob, who kind of stole the heir, the blessing, right? And so on and so forth. So how did Abraham get this inheritance? Well, we know that from Genesis 12, 1 through 4, on the overhead, it starts when God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Blessings and curses, huh? And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you. Now, jumping ahead, do we know how all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham? Because the promised seed of Abraham ultimately is Yeshua the Messiah. So I just close everything and go home. But we're going to go through the rest of this. And we know that this promise of the land and this blessing is an inheritance because that's what Hebrews tells us on the overhead. It says in Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And there's where we have a big problem. If the inheritance that Abraham was to receive was the land, there's a problem. 
Abraham never received that inheritance. Nor Isaac, nor Jacob. Their whole lives, they were strangers in the land. They didn't receive it. Did Israel receive it? Well, they went into the land. But what did God say to them? You have not yet entered the rest and the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. Did Israel ever receive rest in the land? Do they have rest there today? Now, don't misinterpret me. I believe that land is Israel's land. But just as Hebrews says that the things in the Torah are shadow pictures of greater things, that the temple and the sacrifice and the priesthood are shadow pictures of the true heavenly temple, of the true sacrifice, Yeshua, of the true priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, which is Yeshua. Could it be that the inheritance that God promised to Abraham was more than just the land? Well, I kind of cut this passage off because on the next slide, the writer tells us, for he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And then later in that chapter, in, in, uh, that chapter, verses 13 through 16, he talks about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah, and he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, to go home. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The inheritance that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel and all of y'all I'm from Texas, all of y'all, are promised is a land and a place whose architect and builder is God himself. It is a heavenly inheritance. The promised inheritance that Abraham received is actually, I believe, the promise of salvation. Through his seed, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For it's in Yeshua that we have rest and an inheritance. That is the promise. So the next thing to have an inheritance, you have to have a promise that you're going to get something, right? What's the next thing you have to have to receive an inheritance? Well, you have to be an heir. And that's why I discussed with you what an heir is. It's very interesting to note that in Hebrews, it says that Abraham received it as an inheritance. My father gave me his car. My father developed macular degeneration, unfortunately, so he can't drive anymore. And my father was a soldier and you know, really, really didn't have a lot growing up, but my father always wanted something. He wanted a nice car. So in his 80s or late 70s, he bought a Mercedes. Um, 
and he loved that car, but he can't drive it anymore. So he gave it to me. That's what I drove to Shul today. Because I, don't, I can't afford a Mercedes. I have five kids. <laughs> that was not an inheritance. Now, a son can ask for what would be an inheritance early, but that's not an inheritance. Abraham received it as an inheritance. And then he passed it down to his heirs. Well, who receives an inheritance? Who, who becomes an heir? You have to be a son. Son in the ancient times, right? Which means Abraham had to become a son of God. And if you read Parashara at one point, Moses does say to the children of Israel, you are the sons of God. Abraham had to be adopted because there's only one natural-born son of God, and his name is Yeshua. Israel itself was adopted. You don't believe me? Look it up. Abraham was adopted. Now, I went to the well of unlimited information that's always true to look into this called the Internet. And I see that I didn't come up with this idea that Abraham was adopted by God. But a prevailing view I saw online was that when was Abraham adopted? Well, he must have been adopted when he received the covenant of circumcision. I don't think that's right. I believe that is a prevailing view, but I think there's a problem with that. One, because Paul tells us that that's not right. And two, because I think it leads to a mistake of theology that persists to this day. The idea that the heirs of Abraham are limited to and refer specifically to the physical descendants only of Abraham. And if you want to get in on that action, you have to become a descendant of Abraham, i.e., you have to convert to Judaism. Now, I don't want to sacrifice any sacred cows today because I only have 45 minutes, but... Paul addresses this many, many times, particularly in Galatians, which is one of my favorite books that people have a hard time understanding. And what Paul is trying to tell us is, yes, there is a physical heirship that you receive, but remember the physical is a shadow picture of the spiritual. This is why Paul has that very difficult passage in Romans 2, 28 and 29, where he says, but a Jew is one who is inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the letter. And people really struggle with that. He's not saying you're not, you know, the Jews aren't Jews. He's talking about this idea of a spiritual circumcision. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you have a free ticket into heaven. There's no two-covenant theology. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. And so when you look at Romans chapter 4 on the overhead, you'll see that Paul tells us, he, meaning Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. 
For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So what he's saying is the heirship that we receive, this inheritance of salvation, is not based merely on your physical ancestry. I always tell my children whenever I talk about Abraham, I always say, our father, Abraham. I'm not Jewish, I'm Korean, which is still pretty good. But I identify Abraham as my father, not because I'm Jewish, but because we have the faith of Abraham, you become sons of Abraham. And in the other direction, just because you are a physical son of Abraham doesn't mean that you have a free ticket in the paradise. That's why in Luke 3.8, Yeshua says to them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God can raise from these stones sons of Abraham. In John, John 8.39.40, the people said to Yeshua, Abraham is our father. Yeshua said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. The heirs of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. And that is not limited to just the Jews. It also goes to the Gentiles as well. And that is what Paul is trying to tell us. That's his point in Galatians. In Galatians, he's addressing a false gospel, which still exists to this day. I have met people that believe this, where they think that if you want to have salvation, if you want to be a full member of the club, you have to be Jewish or of the circumcision. And Paul says that is a false gospel. It's not just for the Jews, but for the Greek or the Gentiles as well. And so we see in Galatians 3 on the overhead, Paul says, does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel. What? Preached the gospel to Abraham? saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We read that earlier. Genesis has the gospel. Of course it does, because it's about Yeshua. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, Abraham was blessed by God, and he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness before he received circumcision so that those who are of the uncircumcision, which means Gentiles, can become sons of Abraham and fellow heirs through faith. And the same thing applies to the Jews. That is what Yeshua is talking about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When he says to Nicodemus, None can be, unless one's born again, 
you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he re-enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? And I asked people, why do you think Nicodemus said that? What do you all think? You think he took him literally? No, he did not take him literally. Nicodemus was a leader of the Jews, and he is not dumb. Yeshua was speaking in a parable. They were actually having a very Pharisaic Jewish argument. They're talking in metaphors and parallels and parables, I meant to say. Because if you look in the Talmud, for what it's worth, you will see that the concept of being born again, in their perspective, meant to convert to Judaism. If a Gentile wanted to be Jewish, let's say I went back in time and I saw a Pharisee and said, hey, how do I get a place in the kingdom of heaven? He's going to say, well, I got good news. I got the gospel. If you're Jewish, you have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Just don't invoke any of these curses. We built a wall around, a hedge around the law to make sure you don't do that. Well, but I'm not Jewish. I'm Korean. What's he going to say? Well, first he's going to say, what's a Korean? But setting that aside, he's going to say, well, I got good news for you. You're going to go to this guy called the Moil, and you're going to have a strong bedroom. And then you bring a sacrifice, and then you're, you're, you're going to, well, before the sacrifice, we're going to put you in the water, because that's a symbol of death. And when you come out of the water, you will be born again. So the idea to Nicodemus of being born again means to convert to Judaism. So what Nicodemus is saying to Yeshua, he's saying, why do I need to convert to Judaism? I'm already Jewish. He didn't take him literally. And then Yeshua explains to him the spiritual meaning of that, not the religious meaning. He says, what is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. He says, you, Nicodemus, has to be born again. I don't care if you're Jewish. You, Nicodemus, have to be born again. For the spirit goes where it will. So is everybody who is born of the spirit. And there's a big implication behind that that blew Nicodemus' mind. It wasn't the fact that Nicodemus needed to be born again. It was the fact that if you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, it means the door is open for everybody, not just the Jews. And that blew his mind. And that's why he said, how can these things be? And Yeshua said, you are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Because this is actually explained in Moses. And that's why he explains why this is the case. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what that passage is really about. It's not just a nice quotation to put on a coffee mug. It's about God's love for everybody that he opens the door for all of us to be heirs and to receive the blessing of the inheritance. So we can see in Galatians chapter 4 in the overhead, Paul explains, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We can call God Father, Abba. Jew or Gentile, Greek or Korean, 
He is your father if you are of faith. And then he goes on to say, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I cut a lot of slides out because I'm trying to keep it under 45 minutes, which I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So how do you become an heir? How do you become a son of Abraham? By our faith and being born again. Now, there's one final thing that you need to receive an inheritance, and I alluded to it before. It's a promise, in this case of salvation, to an heir, which we get through our faith. But there's one more thing you have to have to receive an inheritance. Does anybody know? Yes. On the overhead, Hebrews chapter 9. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, will meaning will and testament, not your desire, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. This is one of the few times that I'm going to turn to the King James Version. I like King James, but unless you lived in the days of Queen Elizabeth, you may mistake a few things. Yeshua did not say mansions, by the way. In Elizabethan times, a mansion was a word for a room. It didn't mean a big house. So he's prepared a room for us, not a house. Let's look at the King James. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That's where that term comes from. Last time I spoke, I said where the term Old Testament comes from, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Old Testament that Paul was referring to, or Old Covenant, is not a series of books. The New Testament is not a series of books. I don't use that term. Because it creates confusion. People read this and they think he's talking about a series of books. He's talking about a covenant. He is recognizing that the new covenant is like a testament, a will. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is... There must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after the men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. So you can see the writer of the book of Hebrews recognizes the new covenant as like a testament. So in order for us to receive the inheritance, what must happen? The testator must die. 
That's why Yeshua had to die. So that we can receive the blessings from his death and resurrection. And that applies not just to us, but to everybody. Yeshua said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. So, how much time do I have left? Another 20 minutes, right? So we can read in Galatians 3 on the overhead. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Does this sound familiar? Here's the thing. You cannot earn an inheritance. You can be disinherited, but I don't care how nice that neighborhood kid is. He is not my son. He's not going to get an inheritance unless I adopt him. But you can disinherit yourself. But let's look at this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law, By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Messiah Yeshua, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And jumping through some commentary, so I can maybe get to the end of my slides. Let's turn to back to the blessing and cursing and give them some context now. I'm going to explain to you, if I can, in the 20 minutes I have left, what Moses was talking about with the blessings and curses and how you have to look at it in the context of the inheritance. So going back to Galatians 3 on the overhead. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Messiah. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, It is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Talking about Yeshua. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Yeshua Messiah might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In other words, I have children, they're immature. I say, don't cross the street without looking both ways, or I'm going to whoop you. If I catch them doing it, I'm going to whoop them. When they grow up, my commandments to them, my law should be written on their heart. They should know I shouldn't cross the street. That would be bad. 
So then the law was our guardian until Messiah came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I really hope that when my children are adults, they're not going to call me up and say, Hey, Daddy, do I have to look both ways before I cross the railroad tracks? It should be in their heart. For in Messiah Yeshua, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, and I'm talking to you all, and if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Shabbat shalom.